Today we're going to go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we continue on in our Christmas series, Questioning Christmas. Um, we started this last week, and we're just walking through the Christmas story and looking at various questions that different characters asked and why they asked those questions and how we still ask those questions today in many ways and what we can learn from them and what we can learn from God's response to them uh, in the Christmas story. And so today I want to look at Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, and her part of the story here. And the question that she asks is a question of submission. Um, and so we're going to look at that as, uh, and what that, how that applies to us as well. So last week we started off uh, the sermon series and the sermon with a, a great illustration from one of our favorite Christmas movies, Elf. Um, and so today I want to go back a little bit further in the Christmas canon, if you will, uh, to the Santa Claus. Anybody fans of the Santa Claus? Tim Allen fans? Anybody? Um, and so, uh, love the Santa Claus. We watched this one already this year. Um, but if you, know the, if you don't know the story, um, Santa shows up at Tim's house and uh, falls off the roof and ends up dying. And then Tim on the Santa suit and unwittingly becomes Santa Claus. Um, I say unwittingly because he doesn't want this job. He spends the whole next year trying to get out of it, right? Like trying to find a way to, to not be Santa. That was not his plan. It was not what he had in mind for his future. It was not his idea. But the whole time that he's fighting this calling to be Santa, uh, he's miserable, right? Like he, it just ruins his life as long as he's trying to fight against this. But the moment he finally gives in and he finally submits to this call that he has, has been put upon him, he then finally finds peace again. And he actually finds joy and he actually finds life uh, is fulfilling again. And I think that's a really interesting picture that mirrors a lot of times what happens with us and Jesus, with us and God, that he comes to us and he talks about, sorry, this is driving me nuts. We're going to try something different, see if this does any better. Okay, I know that doesn't look very good, but I want you to hear me. Um, so a lot of times we get into this situation with God where he is pressing on us to do something, to go a certain way. He's, he's making his will known, but it doesn't line up with our plans and our will and what we're, we were hoping to do, and what we think is going to be best, and bring us peace, and bring us life, and, but God knows better, and so he doesn't give up, because God knows that the only way we're going to truly experience peace and life is if we are walking in step with him and his will, and uh, we're going to see that today with Mary's story, that this is actually the secret of submission, right, that I can only experience true peace when I submit to the will of God. I can only ever experience true peace, lasting peace, when I submit myself to the will of God for my life. And we're going to see that through Mary's story today. So first point that I want you to see, I'm just going to kind of walk through the story like I did last week and kind of point out some things as we go. And here's the first point that I want you to find in this. When I don't understand the will of God, listen to the word of God. When I don't understand the will of God, I need to listen to the word of God. And we're going to see that here in Mary. Look at verse 26 with me. It starts off like this. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so to start off here, Luke is very much a historian. He's just setting up the story. Right? He's giving you the setting of what's happening. So he says, In the sixth month, doesn't tell us the sixth month of what. We find out later it's actually the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. 
So the story we learned about last week, Elizabeth and Zechariah and the whole thing, he's saying like these are going on at the same time. All right, This is six months into their story. Mary gets this visit from Gabriel again. Gabriel was sent from God, doing God's work, bringing God's word, bringing God's will to Mary. And he's sent this time to Galilee, which is a region of Judea, uh, specifically to the town of Nazareth, okay, to this couple, Joseph and Mary. So he's giving you all these details because he wants you to understand, like, this is a real historical event. There's historical context here. You can trace the names. You can trace the setting. Like, this is something that actually happened. And then we get to the really crazy part. He said he's going to a virgin who is betrothed. Now, we don't use the word betrothed a lot anymore. That's not in our common vocabulary today. So betrothed basically meant that they were engaged, like, with no return policy. Okay? Like, like today, engagements are still kind of fluid. They can kind of come and go. Betrothed was not like that. Betrothed was like a contract already in place for marriage. It kind of went like this. The husband of the bride and the husband of the groom would get together, and they would make a deal. They did arrange marriages back then. And they would make a deal that these two people were going to be married, and then the uh, father of the uh, groom would pay a bride price to the father of the bride. Not trafficking her, okay? This is not, he's not buying a bride. Um, but you have to understand, in this economy, the way this worked was the bride's family was losing a worker in the household. And the groom's family was gaining a worker in the household. And so this was to help offset the financial burden that would be put upon the bride's family as, they, as she moves out and goes to live in this other household. And so, but it was part of this legal contract. So once the bride price was paid as part of the betrothal, they were essentially married, all right? And they would, the, the groom would sign a vow. They would spend the whole next year planning the wedding, getting things ready, get the house ready for the marriage. And they wouldn't consummate the marriage yet, but they would be essentially seen as married by the society, by the community. And so the only way to break the betrothal, to break the contract, was divorce, okay? So this, is, this was a, a serious arrangement here between Mary and Joseph, and then it goes to verse 28, and it says, And he came, the Gabriel, came and said to her, to Mary, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, this verse right here is, is important because it's been misunderstood and misused for years to teach a false doctrine about Mary. So I want to just kind of flesh that out for you for just a moment here. Um, so in every major English translation... Every other, including the ESV, they all say pretty much the same thing. They have some type of greeting, followed by this phrase, O favored one. That's what they call Mary here. Meaning that she was favored, that she was chosen by God for some task, for some mission, if you will. Okay? However, in the Catholic translations of the Bible, there's two major ones. They both do the same thing. They translate this, um, and they, what's interesting is when they did the translations, they went back and translated from the original Latin Vulgate translation, rather than the original Greek manuscripts that Luke wrote. So it's kind of a translation of a translation, if you will, rather than going back to the original. And they translated um, hail, that's the greeting, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. All right, so they changed that phrase there from favored one to full of grace. And they, what they mean by that is that they teach that Mary herself was full of grace, meaning the grace of salvation. So that from birth, she was sinless and full of God's grace, and that's why she was worthy to give birth to God's son. And then they take that 
understanding that interpretation, and then they apply it over to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, which many of us are familiar with, which says, for by grace you have been saved. And they say, okay, well, Mary is full of grace, and so therefore she, is a co, she plays a co-role with Jesus in salvation. So you're no longer saved by Jesus alone, you're saved by Jesus and Mary together, okay? And that they both play a part in salvation because she was the holy, sinless mother full of grace. Okay, this is kind of the teaching. The reason that that is false is because Scripture is clear multiple times that we are saved through Christ alone. Okay, let me give you some verses for that. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There's only one mediator, not two, there's one, he's Jesus, because he's the only one who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's the one who paid for sin. Another time where Jesus actually himself is talking to his disciples and says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through me alone, Jesus is saying, not through anyone else, not through any other way, All right, so it's pretty clear, and so let me, just, let me just be honest, like Mary, was she favored by God? Absolutely. Was she chosen by God to play a very vital role in the redemption story? Absolutely. But is she a savior? No. That's only Jesus Christ. That's why we celebrate his birth, not hers. Because Jesus alone brings us salvation. So it's not, if you, leave, if you look into the story here, you can even see Mary understands this because look at how she responds to the angel when he comes to her and he says, oh, favored one, look at verse 29. It says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying. And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Like Mary's confused here. <laughs> she doesn't understand why the angel would call her favored one. She's like, I'm, I'm nothing special. I'm just a normal, lowly, no-name country girl from Galilee. Like, I, I don't have anything special to bring to the table. I'm not, she didn't think of herself as holy or perfect or in mediating salvation. Like, she did not think of herself extraordinary in any way. And so she's like, what, what are you talking about? So he goes on to explain more. He says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. There's that word again, favor. Meaning that, she, again, she was chosen. She was chosen by God for a mission, for a calling, for a, purple, for a purpose. Not because she was sinless, not because she was holy, not because she had done something to earn this favor with God. God's favor doesn't come to us because we earn it. God's favor comes because he chooses to give it. She was chosen by God. And here's the thing that I've noticed all throughout the Bible and even through my own life and through ministry God loves to choose ordinary people. <laughs> people just like you and I. He loves to choose ordinary people to do extraordinary work for him so that when it happens, we can't take the credit. And God gets all the glory for doing what we could never do on our own. That's exactly what he's doing here with Mary. He goes on to explain the angel. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So now she's even more confused. Because, I mean, she's, she's still young, but she understands the birds and the bees. Right? She's had that talk at some point with mom and dad. Like, she understands how this whole process of having a baby works. And she's like, 
um, yeah, I haven't done that yet, so what are you talking about? Like, how am I going to have a baby in my womb? Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, this does not line up with God's original design for creation. But he keeps going, and he says, And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary's like, what? Like, are are you talking about the Messiah? Is that the conversation we're having right now? Are you saying that the Messiah is coming through me? You see, this would not have been lost on her. These were the scriptures, these were the promises, these were the prophecies that every Jewish child was taught over and over and over again in their home. And so when the angel started laying out who this child was going to be, this would have taken it to a whole other level for Mary. And she, started, she would have started to catch on, like, oh, this is going to be a special thing. This is going to be a special work of the Lord right here. This isn't any normal pregnancy we're talking about. And she would have started to remember some of those messianic scriptures that she had been taught as a child. Things like 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, where God's talking to David and giving him the promise. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Later on he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and that your throne shall be established forever. Or maybe she would have thought about Isaiah 9, 7, which says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mary would have started to understand that what the, the message this angel was bringing wasn't a bad dream. It wasn't some hallucination. It wasn't like she was, she was misunderstanding because he was starting to relate to her, listen, God's will for you, this plan that he has for your life, is all rooted first and foremost in his word. See, there's a principle that we need to understand when we're trying to hear from God, when we're trying to discern God's will. Anything that God says will always align with what he has already said in his word. Sometimes we get stuck in situations where we're praying and we're asking God, like, is it A? Is it B? What do I do? I don't understand. And we can get really fuzzy and get really confused and we're like, I don't know what to do with this, Lord. But anytime you're trying to discern God's voice in those moments, One thing you can know for sure is God is not going to tell you something new or different than what he has already said in the word of God. Because he does not change. Yesterday, today, and forever, the Lord is the same. His word stands. And so Mary knew she could believe what the angel was saying, even though she didn't fully understand it yet. Right? She's still, there's still a lot of like holes in this story and blanks to be filled in, and she does not have a clear picture of what's going on. But she knows she can trust the angel, she can trust his word, because it aligns itself with God's word. That's how you know. She allowed the word of God to explain to her the will of God. Oftentimes in my life, I think you you would 
probably say the same. There are often times where I don't understand God's will. <laughs> I don't understand God's ways. I ask a lot of questions like, why did you do it that way? Like, why is it looking like this? I don't understand. This doesn't make sense. And we really shouldn't be surprised by that because in his word, God tells us, Isaiah 55, right? Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Like, he told us up front, like, listen, you're not always going to understand it. If you can always understand it, it's probably not the will of God. Because God does things that we don't understand. And in those moments, we have to decide where are we going to gain the understanding that we need to interpret the will of God. Are we going to go to God and his word? Or are we going to listen to the voices of the world and of culture and of media? Which authority will we submit our minds to? You are submitting your mind to something. You're listening to some voice that's telling you and informing your thought patterns. You get to choose which authority you're submitting your mind to. And if you want to know the will of God, if you want to follow the will of God, you have to submit to the word of God, not other voices. You know, Christmas is the season of giving, right? It's a big gift-giving season. We just all love to, to give gifts. We had a great Christmas shop this weekend. But I did a little research this week, uh, just curious on some things. And um, so from what I could tell, last year, Americans, just Americans, not the world, just Americans, spent over $1 trillion on Christmas gifts, with a T, if you didn't hear that. Approximately, the average is $1,000 per family on Christmas each year. And we have a lot of voices that are telling us that if we want our kids to really be happy, if we really want to be good parents, then we have to get them everything that they want. Right? If we're going to be a really good spouse, then we have to spare no expense for that loved one and to give them something at Christmas. And if, if you know, <clears throat> we always need that latest trend and that latest gadget and that new thing, and if we don't have it, then we're going to be left out. And, and all these voices, we feel that pressure, whether explicitly or implicitly. We feel that pressure. And I remember a few years back, Courtney and I, we were, <laughs> we were feeling that pressure. And we were deciding, like, this is, this is not what is best for our family. Like, we got to a Christmas where we literally were looking around going, okay, our girls have every toy that we can find at Walmart. Well, like, I, don't, I don't have anything to buy them this year. Like, there's nothing left to buy. Like, we, they have it all. There's a problem here, okay? And so we decided that's not what we wanted. That's not the focus. That's not the expectation that we wanted at Christmas for our kids. We wanted it to be about Christ. We wanted it to be about his birth, right? And so we're like, we, we, need, to, we need to put some, some guardrails on this. And so we came up with the, the four-gift rule. Right? We decided we were going to do four gifts at Christmas. That's all they get. They get four gifts, which we regularly break that rule every year. They usually get five because there's always like a fifth thing they have to have. But, but we're trying to like limit this so that we're looking at this and saying, God, what's the most important thing here? What's your will? We want to emphasize Christ over consumerism in our home at Christmas. But it's, it's so easy, I think, in these moments where we get caught up in life, we get caught up in culture to miss opportunities to, to hear and follow the will of God, and we allow these other voices to shape our understanding of our lives. And let me just clarify real quick. I just realized how that all sounded a little bit. Like, 
if you give your kids more than four gifts, that's fine. We're not guilting you here. Like, you give whatever you want to give, okay? Like, this is, I'm not saying a standard up for our church. You do not have to do what we do. I'm just telling you, like, this is a way that God was speaking to us, okay? And I think there's lots of other ways in our culture where we see this playing out, these, this battle between the voices and God's word. Um, you know, our, the voice of our culture tells us that we are neglecting our kids if we don't give them every opportunity in sports, in the arts, in school, if we don't give them every activity in every spot, if we don't do all, then we're neglecting our kids. But the word of God says that we're neglecting our kids if we don't give them every spiritual opportunity in the Lord. That's first. But we allow these other voices to, to ramrod our family schedules into something other than what God is asking of us. I think about marriage. The culture says marriage is to make you happy. And if you're not happy, if it's not meeting your needs, if it's not working out, well, then just peace out. I'm gone. God's word says your marriage is to make you and your spouse holy, more than happy. And what God values in marriage is love and forgiveness and endurance and perseverance allowing him to work in you in ways that maybe he couldn't otherwise. I think about just our own internal self. The culture tells us that, that you deserve the best, right? As a human, just because you were born, you deserve the best. You deserve to be happy. You need to love yourself first. God's word says, we're supposed to love him first. That God deserves the best. That he is first and foremost. Actually, the, God's word tells us that we love ourselves too much. <laughs> That's actually the, why we sin. That's actually the problem with the whole sin thing, is that we love ourselves too much. We put ourselves before we put God. Do you see the, do you see the conflict between these voices in our lives? And if we're going to understand God's will, if we're going to follow God's will, we have to listen to God's voice, and God's voice comes primarily through his word. When I don't understand the will of God, listen to the word of God. That needs to be the voice guiding your decisions. So that's the first thing we see from Mary. Second thing I see in this story, thinking about submission, is this. Point number two, when I don't know how to follow the will of God, rely on the hand of God. When I don't know how, when I don't know how to do it, how to make it happen, how to, how to take those steps, then I have to rely on the hand of God. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 34. So Mary finally is going to respond now to the angel. It says, Mary said to the angel, how will this be? There's the question. How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, this is the third time in this small passage that she has been called a virgin. And so clearly, the virgin birth is a clear focus and, and a point of, of emphasis here for Luke. So let's talk about the virgin birth for just a second, because again, this is another hotly debated topic in the, in the world of faith today. There are three major views on the virgin birth. Number one, no virginity. It was a hoax. Her and Joseph, or her and someone else, had Jesus, and then they blamed it on the Holy Spirit to get out of whatever consequences they might face. 
And most people who take that viewpoint is, uh, they are already skeptical of God. Right? They're already trying to find a way to discount God, discount his word, um, discount his power from the jump. But the problem is, Mary's own response here, Mary's own question clearly shows that this was not the case. This was not the plan that God had. Like She's asking, like, what are you talking about? How is that possible? I haven't done that. Like she's confessing here in of herself, like that's not what's happened. So the second major view is what we call perpetual virginity. That Mary's question here of how is this possible is re- in relation to a vow of virginity that she took in her younger years. Basically saying that she was going to be a virgin her entire life. That she would never have children. The problem with that viewpoint is a couple things. Number one, there's no written record of any such vow anywhere in any documents, more or less the Bible, okay? Secondly, it doesn't really make any logical sense. Why would she agree to marry Joseph if she never had any intentions of consummating the marriage or having children? Because in the Jewish culture, that's what you did. If you got married, you were expected to have kids and grow the family. And so if she had no intention of doing that, she would never have agreed to a marriage with Joseph. Or if she did, that would be a very dishonorable thing to do, hence the whole problem with her not being sinless. The third view, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the third thing that that takes perpetual virginity off the table is actually scripture tells us very explicitly that her and Joseph did consummate the marriage and that they had other children. A couple verses, Matthew 1, 24-28 says, Joseph took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, implying that after Jesus came, they went on with normal married life, right? And then we find out they definitely did, because later on in Matthew 13, 55 through 56, it says, is not this the carpenter's son, talking about Jesus and Joseph? Is this not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not all of his sisters with us? So like, they're, we're, we're at least up to six or seven kids at this point, all right? So they definitely understood how this process worked, okay? This is not something that just, they, they weren't all miraculous conceptions. So the true view of this is what we find right here in Luke's account of Scripture, that there was a true virgin birth. What the angel described and what Scripture confirms is that Mary was a virgin both before and after she gave birth to Jesus until she later knew Joseph. And hence, her confused question of like, how will this happen? <laughs> how is this possible? So the angel then tries to explain it to her. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the angel describes here a miraculous conception unlike any other in all of human history where the Holy Spirit would divinely place, miraculously place, an embryonic Jesus in Mary's womb for her to then carry and eventually deliver. He would have gained no DNA from Mary or Joseph or anyone else. He was miraculously, divinely placed as an embryo in the womb of Mary. That's what they're describing here. And it says, therefore, look there in the text, it says, therefore, the child will be born, will be called holy. 
therefore connects it back to how he was conceived, right? How this happened. Because he was miraculously placed there as the Son of God, he is holy, meaning set apart. He's been set apart for a special mission from God to come and have spiritual redemption for God's people. He's set apart from humankind in the fact that he has no sin nature because he has no line, he has no biological line to Adam and back to original sin. And so he could come in sinless and remain that way throughout his lifetime because of this virgin birth. And it goes on to say, because he is holy, he will be called the Son of God. He's the only human to ever be perfectly holy and sinless. And this is the pivotal point in the gospel, right? Without this reality, without the reality of the virgin birth and all, like there is no gospel. It starts with us, right? It starts with that we're sinners, we rebel against God, we come into life with a sin nature, we make sinful choices, we rebel against the God of the universe. We obey, we disobey his laws and his words. And because of that, we deserve wrath and hell and punishment. But God in his grace and his mercy and his love towards us, he sent his own son, the son of God, to be born as a baby in a manger to a virgin and then to grow and to live a sinless and perfect life so that one day he could go to the cross and sacrifice that life and substitute himself to pay for our sin. God needed that perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice to cover the sins of us. Only Jesus could do that. So he went in our place and he died our death and he was buried and three days later he rose back to life to prove that he was God and to offer us forgiveness through his spotless, sinless sacrifice. That if we will turn from sin and believe in Jesus, we can be saved. That only works because of what happens right here in Luke 1.26-38. through 38. But the angel goes on to explain more. Look at verse 36. He says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also con- conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So now, again, he's pointing back to the Elizabeth story. He's like, behold, remember Elizabeth? The old barren woman? She's six months along. Right? She's having a baby. That was God. The God of power is not just the God of the Old Testament. It's not just the God who used to be. God is still powerful and working right now, right here in your life. That's what Gabriel was saying to Mary. How is this possible? How is this going to happen? God's power. That's how. Not your power, Mary. Not your ability. Nothing that you can do. God's power is going to do this. You see, God's will always requires us to submit to his power because God alone can do it. We can't do it on our own. If you think you're walking in God's will for your life, but you're doing it all by yourself, you missed it. If you can do it alone, if you can do it without his help, without his power, then that is not what God has called you to. He's called you to more. Because God's will always requires God's power. 
He never expects us to do it on our own. He's not expecting Mary to figure this out on her own. Whoever God calls, God equips. Because nothing is impossible with God. At our house, at the Mathis house, we are strictly uh, team turkey, um, which means no Christmas decorations, no Christmas celebrations, no Christmas music before Thanksgiving. Like, that's just like a hard and fast rule in our house. But the day after Thanksgiving, game on, right? Like, it's like full family decorating day, garland goes up, nativity gets set up, wretched lights get messed with, the tree gets put up, all of it's going on. And the big highlight of the decorating moment, the decorating day, is who gets to put the star on the top of the tree, right? Anybody else have this going on at their house? And so for us, we, we let the girls kind of take turns putting the star on the top of the tree throughout the years. But as they were little, they couldn't do it, right? They couldn't reach it. They couldn't get up there and reach the top on their own. Even with a cherry, with a stool, they just, they couldn't do it. But when I would go to them and I would say, hey, do you, would you put the star on the tree this year? They never hesitated. They're like, yeah, yes, 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 I'd love to do that. Even though they knew full well, there is no way they could get that star up on top of the tree by themselves, right? Unless you pull an elf and then the whole thing comes down. Like, you know, it's like, like they're not, they couldn't get it up there. But they knew if dad was asking them to do it, dad was going to help them do it. They never doubted that, right? So I would lift them up and I would hold them up there and they would put the star on the tree and, and we'd get it done. That's what God does with us. He lifts us up so we can put the star on the tree. No, he, whatever he's asking us to do, he comes along with his power and his help for us to be able to do it. He doesn't expect us to do it on our own. He assures us that nothing is impossible with him. Mary knew her task and her mission was too big. She knew she could never do that on her own. But God didn't ask her to. So if I'm going to submit to God's will, it also means submitting to God's power and help to get it done. When I don't know how to follow his will, rely, I'm sorry, when I don't know how to follow the will of God, rely on the hand of God. His hand is his help, it's his power. All right, third thing. One more verse. Look at verse 38. Mary has one more moment in the story. She says, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Point number three. When I don't feel peace in the will of God, trust the sovereignty of God. When I don't feel peace in the will of God, trust the sovereignty of God. She says right here to the angel, her response to all this crazy, like, think about what she, she just heard. <laughs> this whole thing that the angel just laid out in front of her, and her response is, I'm the servant of the Lord. And actually, the Greek word there that is translated servant actually would be better translated slave. It's doulos. She said, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the slave of the Lord. Like, whatever. 100% commitment, obedience, surrender. I'll do whatever you say. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary is in full-on submission to the will of God right here. 
And I think sometimes we, we've heard the story so much and we've seen like the portrayals of Mary in the, in the movies and the TV that she's always just this like perfect little humble girl. And so she's, of course, she's going to say, oh, yes, Lord. But I think in reality, there were some major thoughts, maybe even concerns or fears running through Mary's heart and mind at this point. Like saying yes to this could very well cost her big time. Like, what's Joseph going to say? Her betrothed, her husband, to be. Like, is he going to believe this crazy story? Hey, by the way, babe, an angel showed up and said, like, is he going to be angry at her perceived unfaithfulness? Is he going to divorce her and, and leave her to raise this child alone? Is the Son of God going to have a, a broken home? Like, can you imagine? What she's processing, thinking about even her community, her family, her friends, her people, like, would they ridicule her? Would they ostracize her as an adulteress? Would they, would she have to live as an outcast for the rest of her life? Or worse yet, would they stone her to death in accordance with Jewish law? For Mary to submit herself to God's will meant that she could have to suffer in order to follow the Lord. It wasn't going to be easy. And she will. She will suffer in multiple ways as a result of this calling that God has put on her life. But yet, Mary submits to God's will not because it's safe, not because it's easy, not because it's desirable, but because she believes that He is God that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he is good and he is powerful. And whatever he calls her to do, no matter how hard or painful or difficult, whatever he calls her to do, if she submits, he will see it through. And so she trusts him in her submission regardless of the sacrifice. And she finds her peace in who he is rather than what she's called to do. This is the important thing about peace. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of God. When God promises us peace, when it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, it's not saying that Jesus removes all of our pain and removes all of our suffering and removes all of our struggle. Believe in Jesus and everything goes great. That's not what it says. That's not what it means. But it does guarantee that he will be with you. That he will be near you in the craziness, in the turmoil, in the struggle. That he will be your peace in the midst of the storm. God's presence was getting ready to come closer to Mary than it had ever been to anyone in the person of Jesus Christ. And she was trusting in that presence for the peace that she didn't have yet. So she submitted herself to the will of God. No matter how God has called you to do, no matter what he's led you to, you will only find peace when you submit. Because that is where you will experience the presence of God. When we got ready to plant harvest, 
we had some friends at our old church. They would talk to like, like I don't, well, are, you, are, you, are you sure? <laughs> like, that's kind of crazy town. Like, I don't know. Like, aren't you scared to just go off and, like, do this thing? And my answer was like, yeah. Yeah, we're scared. Yeah, it's crazy. But if God has told us to do this, we can't do anything else. Because anything else would be a disobedience. And disobedience puts me in conflict with God. And that separates me from him. And that's not how I want to live my life. I want to live in the presence of God. And the presence of God only comes through walking in the will of God, no matter how scary or crazy it is. That's how you get close to the Lord. Submission isn't about feeling at peace, but trusting the God who gives peace. So when I don't feel peace in the will of God, trust in the sovereignty of God. Because I can only experience true peace when I submit to the will of God. That's what Mary was learning here. That's what Mary's showing us here. That true peace comes in the presence of God. And Christmas is a great reminder. This, this time of year can get so lost in everything else. But one thing I want you to remember this year, one thing I want you to take away this Christmas is that, listen, Christmas reminds us that God came to earth. God came to be near us. He came so that we could experience his presence in greater ways. And the peace that that comes with that. But the only way you will experience the presence of God is to submit to his will for your life. First with salvation. And then secondly, by listening and following the spirit and his word. Trust his will. Draw near to him and experience true peace in your life this Christmas. Let's stand. Let's pray and sing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bow before you this morning. Lord, just thankful once again to be here in your presence, to be with you in worship. God, thank you that you meet us here every week so faithfully. Thank you for coming near to us for stepping into our world as a baby so that we can experience more of your presence. In you and you alone, Lord, can we find perfect peace. So Lord, we ask that we help, Lord, ask, Lord, help us. Help us to submit to you. Help us to submit to your will. Even when it's scary, even when it's hard, even when it's dangerous, help us to trust you. Trust your goodness. Trust your faithfulness. Lord, trust your steadfast love. Help us to trust that you are sovereign over everything. And your will is the best place we can be. Lord, we submit to you because you are sovereign over us and over everything around us. We pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus Christ.